Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect Podcast. So blessed that you joined us here. I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you may be in our fine universal church. Well, we're going to be talking about the holy souls in purgatory, something that a lot of Catholics don't know about. Some of the people from the outside of the Catholic Church are curious about. It's something that us Catholics, we really got to take seriously. I'm so glad that uh, to introduce you, if you haven't heard of William Albrecht before, great apologist in our church that uh, does so much good work uh, to help us out uh, in understanding our faith better and sharing our faith better. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with William, with you, and uh, talking about, uh, like I said, uh, uh, maybe a misunderstood uh, doctrine of purgatory. And I think you're going to learn a lot from this conversation. But before we get to that, let's start with a quote from St. Alphonsus Liguori. By assisting them, we shall not only give great pleasure to God, but will acquire also great merit for ourselves. And in return for our suffrages, these blessed souls will not neglect to obtain for us many graces from God, but particularly the grace of eternal life. I hold for certain that a soul delivered from purgatory by the suffrages of a Christian when she enters paradise, will not fail to say to God, Lord, do not suffer to be lost that person who has liberated me from the prison of purgatory and has brought me to the enjoyment of thy glory sooner than I have deserved. End quote. Uh, again, another great quote from a great saint, St. Alphonsus Liguori. And purgatory is something that we should be aware of. I wouldn't want to say that we should be afraid of purgatory, but we should be definitely acknowledging the existence of purgatory and that it is not a fun place. It's not just a, a place between heaven and hell that's, uh, that you hang out at until you get to, to see the beatific vision of Jesus Christ. There's great suffering that is there. We have many saints that have told us this, that the church has told us this. There's biblical evidence for this as well. And uh, that's why I'm really excited to have William here, William Albrecht, who's got a great YouTube channel and website called Patristic Pillars, where you can learn a lot about your faith and uh, learn enough about it that you can share it and you can grow in your relationship with the Lord uh, by knowing and sharing your faith. And he's going to explain a little bit about the the biblical evidence for purgatory, um, historically how the church has treated the doctrine of purgatory, and even some ways in which uh, we can avoid it as well and we can help the souls in purgatory. So without further ado, really excited to share this conversation with William Albrecht. We'll see you on the other side of the interview, my friends. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, William Albrecht is a Catholic apologist, an international speaker and debater who has participated in over 70 live and moderated debates. Incredible. He has a fantastic website called patristicpillars.com and has a particular passion for the early church fathers and their role in his conversion to the Catholic Church. He's also a family man and, of course, our brother in Christ. Welcome, William Albrecht, to the Great White North and the Catholic Connect podcast. Brother, I'm thrilled to be here with you, thrilled to be able to share my love and my passion of the faith with you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so much, William. It's really a blessing to have you. Very excited to to catch up with you and chat. Now, we were going to talk about uh, about purgatory, yeah. all, all the fun topics, of course, as we enter uh, and as we record this and release it, it will be in the uh, the month of the Holy Souls in November. But Amen. Uh, I first heard you on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, mm, awesome. and we've had a few of their uh, hosts on our show before, which has been a blessing, on Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda, so highly recommend that show as oh, well. Yeah. And he referred to you as a master apologist. I love that. So <laughs> now most of our listeners may not be called to that full-time apologetics uh, in uh, or being an apologist in the church, but how important is it for every single one of us baptized Catholics to, to spend every day learning something a little bit more about our faith so we can defend it, and most importantly, we can spread it with charity? Yeah, I think it really is important, David, uh, really especially the, because of the times that we're living in where we find a lot of Catholics um, leaving the faith or those that remain uh, really on the fence, having problems with believing in things like the real presence, the Holy Eucharist and intercession of the saints and many other things. I do think it is really important to become acquainted with the faith, read the great saints, doctors of the church, what they had, the incredible wisdom they had that they had to impart upon us I think it really is important and really crucial in grounding oneself in, in our faith. 
hundred percent. And and we need to to spread that message with uh, with charity and with joy. And I know yeah. we just got to be ready. And it doesn't have to be something super fancy or theological, yeah. philosophical. You know, eventually people will get to that. But sometimes people just need to hear your story, right, William? I mean, there's you can't argue with somebody's testimony when you share what uh, the great things that Jesus has done for you. Those are really good points that you bring up there, David. And I I think of for many years uh, when I began debating a long time ago, uh, I think one of my major problems, and I, I said uh, with all honesty, as I've learned through the years, was I approached debating from a strictly, strongly academic point of view in the sense of incredibly deep theological talk, a lot of Greek, a lot of uh, the biblical languages. There's nothing wrong with that. But the audience that I'm trying to reach are, are people that don't know Greek or people that perhaps uh, need to an introduction to the faith and what have you. I eventually came to realize that and um, the very first book that I actually published with uh, with my co-author, Father Coppice, um, on Mariology, we wrote it, we sat down and we said, look, uh, we're going to write it from the perspective of the everyday person that anybody in the pew can sit down and read it and can gain knowledge of our Holy Mother Mary from it. And I think that is a really, really important thing. Make sure you're able to reach people. If you're going to debate, if you if you feel your calling is to, is to debate, uh, you know, don't go in there and, and puff your chest up and try to do it for glory for yourself. It's all for the glory of God. And to make sure you try to reach people because a lot of people are going to hear you. Even if, even if you start off slowly or with hardly any following, chances are a good amount of people will eventually hear you. So you're going to want to be charitable and you're going to want to defend the faith in a manner in which people can understand and appreciate your approach. And I think that baptismal grace that we receive you know, when we're baptized and we take uh, the confirmation and the the, the gifts of the Spirit turns into the fruits of the Spirit if we yeah. let them stir in our hearts and our souls, right? So yeah. we have to be living in a state of grace in order to uh, to realize that yeah. and to, to follow what God's will. And I always say too, you know, sometimes we're, uh, you know, we're always looking for opportunities and we say pray for opportunities to spread mm-hmm. the gospel. I think we actually need to pray for the, the grace to recognize those opportunities because there's yeah. so many every day, right, William? We just got to pray for the grace to actually recognize them because the end of the day, sometimes you look back and like, oh, I could have, I could have shared this with someone, or I could have been an example of the gospel of this person, and then you realize there really were a lot of opportunities that you, that you left on the table per se, right? So without uh, a doubt, no, that's uh, that's great, and in uh, some great books, and we're going to make sure that we include all those in the show notes to awesome. to share with people as well. So awesome. now let's talk about something that's just really mm-hmm. misunderstood in our church, unfortunately, yeah. uh, un- with our own our own brothers and sisters in the Lord. The baptized and how many funerals have we gone to, mm. uh, William? Where uh, you know, uh, and sometimes just very good people, people that are from our parish, from our families, yeah. but uh, you know, we're we're too quick to canonize people. And is there is there a, a a more uncharitable thing to do for the holy souls in purgatory than yeah. to canonize them at their funeral and yep. to not pray for them? I mean, that's this this problem that we have in our our church. And just because you, you pray for somebody's soul doesn't mean you're condemning anybody or saying yeah. they're bad or anything, but it's the most charitable thing we can do. So maybe let's start there. What is the traditional Catholic belief and doctrine in purgatory, William? Yeah. Now that, that, that you, you brought up in what I think is probably one of the best points I've ever heard brought up. Um, and I've got to say, I've done a lot of shows in purgatory and with the points you brought up there were, were magnificent because it, it, it reminds me of the words of the great Ephraim um, and many other fathers, not only Ephraim, several others who they realized that their time was coming. And a lot of these incredible fathers, when I say time, that the end of their life was near. And a lot of these were incredible saints of the church, lived beautifully holy lives. But they urge people to not go to their graves and to weep or to lay flowers there, rather to pray for them. So what an incredible point I think that you bring up there is that uh, if you assume uh, that the, the, the departed person is automatically in heaven and no, no longer needs your prayer, uh, really that is pro- perhaps the, the gravest error that we can make. We should pray for them and realize that God is not a fool, even if the saint is in heaven. Uh, any prayer is an efficacious prayer. Any prayer is a beautiful prayer. And where the body of Christ, every prayer is helpful to the whole body. That's really the way things work. So what, what do we mean by purgatory? 
very, very simple. Number one, the church has not, believe it or not, has not defined a whole lot of things in regards to purgatory. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, if anybody asks and says, well, Brother David, uh, how many years will I uh, go through purgation or is purgatory an actual physical place? Things like that have never been defined by the church. What is defined is in the afterlife, it is possible that one may need to undergo post-mortem purification. The other thing defined is this purification is painful in some way. Now, in what manner is that painful? We don't know. We know that it's painful of some sort. There is a kind of suffering that happens, and we take that directly from the words of sacred scripture. The other theological note that is scriptural and the church is defined because, you know, you find it in Holy Writ, is uh, the fact that our prayers can help those undergoing these trials and tribulations. So all of those things, when we combine them, we realize these things are part of the doctrine, the dogma of what purgatory is. It is post-mortem. We don't call the suffering that we undergo here on earth purgatory. Now, you can call it purgatorial in some sense, but that's not what the church means when the church talks about purgatory. Purgatory, in the strict sense of how the church has defined it, is post-mortem, which means in the afterlife. And we believe, David, as faithful Catholics, we believe we can show this from the Bible itself and from sacred tradition as well. And let's go to that step of, of Scripture, because, you know, yeah. often we hear our Protestant brothers and sisters will come to us and, you know, they'll yeah. ask, and, and a lot of them are just, you know, respectful too. They just mm -hmm. don't know any better, but any better. But we hear them say, you know, they challenge us by asking, well, is, is God's grace not sufficient for someone? Is that yeah. the, the sacrifice on the cross and at Calvary, was that not sufficient for us and for mm -hmm. our sins? Um, yep. and, and why isn't that enough for Catholics? But what are some areas of biblical evidence that we can share with our Protestant brothers and sisters, but also with our own brothers and sisters in the church that might not know uh, that how we can charitably instruct the ignorant? Yeah, really great, great point, great questions there. Number one, I think the one area that I, I like to go to when I dialogue with uh, with our evangelical friends, uh, David, is, is 1 Corinthians 3. Now, there are many other ones, but what, a, what an evangelical is going to want is they're going to want you to show them strictly the purification model in the afterlife, the massive majority of them. And you find that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3, because remember, you find this man, an example, and, and Paul is referring to mankind in general, because in 1 Corinthians 3, he's really chastising the Corinthians. He's had to give them a number of exhortations, and he realizes that the day will be coming for them very soon. Now, what day is that? Well, when Paul talks about the day or the Lord's day, uh, he's particularly talking about, in this context, the afterlife, whether it be the particular judgment or the general judgment. It's the afterlife, either which way you look at it. He realizes that the Corinthian church, just like himself, are likely going to die soon. Now, how does he know that? He was one of the ones that was taking a part in killing Christians. They were being martyred daily. It was illegal to be a Christian. You couldn't be a Christian without being persecuted. So he's telling them, get your life together. Stop being factious. Stop having divisions amongst yourself. And he tells them, he begins right around verse 10. He tells them, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Later on, he will identify what he means by that. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Now, the reason he utilizes those metaphors is he's in, they're indicative of the way the person has lived their life. Gold, silver, precious stones are indicative. They're precious metals, indicative of good works, of having lived a good life. Wood, hay, or straw, indicative of sin. Now, there is no such thing as a bad work. All bad works are sin. And, and Paul and every writer identify them that way. So clearly showing one that is built in a certain way, lived a great life. Then one that has not lived such a great life, but we have to add the very concept of purgatory, David, is one 
that undergoes this purification has died in the friendship of God. So where is that in the actual text? Well, if you look at the problems in the Corinthian community, they're not mortal sins. And we realize that because we're told right here, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So right away we realize the reward is salvation. Now, one man is saved immediately. But the other metaphorical example is if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, if you look at that particular Greek word there, that is the Greek word zemiothesitai, from the Greek word zemiao. That Greek word, I've looked at the way the Greek word was used in the Greek Old Testament, New, New Testament, and through the patristic era and before the Septuagint was written as well. And it is utilized a massive majority of time to indicate actual kind of punishment and actual kind of suffering. Well, even if you look and you find certain examples, because you can find a few, where it's not an actual suffering, but it's a punishment, still fits the Catholic model of this man undergoing a kind of punishment in the afterlife. In this case, he's suffering loss, but here is what we talk about, the man dying in the friendship of God. Because even that man who suffers loss is punished, he will be saved. But how? Only as through fire. And one thing that I pointed out, David, is when you have precious metals, those exact Greek words there, combined with the Greek diaporos, which is through fire, everywhere we look, every single time, it is of a purification. This is one kind of deadly error I've encountered. When I've heard Catholics make the mistake of saying, well, look, you've got the Greek word paros, that means purification. No, it doesn't. That's not what the Greek word paros means. Paros means fire. That's it. But here, in the context, it has to mean purification because of how it's connected with precious metals. And then when we add to that, David, uh, the massive amount of early church fathers that have provided commentary in 1 Corinthians 3, they all look at it as a purification going on here and also going on in the afterlife i apologize if that was a little bit long no, no that's awesome that's that a that's a meat and potatoes a high level <laughs> catholicism i love it high octane i love it our awesome. listeners will love it too thanks william Definitely. never even thought of it that way there is that difference eh, with that greek word yeah when it comes to to fire or purification mm -hmm. that's so good and these are the kind of tools that we need to to uh to hang on to and kind of put in our belt so when we do have our discussions with other people that we can at least give them some some good reasoning behind what we're we're trying to share with them, right? Definitely. So I know the early church fathers. If uh, you've been uh, you know covering the early church mm -hmm. fathers for a long time, and it's it's so beautiful, isn't it? To see so many people that have come to the Catholic Church and have been so heavily influenced by the early church fathers, which is just fantastic. And I think yeah. sometimes forgotten. I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic, and you know I've only been introduced to the early church fathers just recently, but it's. Uh, what a beautiful treasury of uh, gift and uh, oh, yeah. and writings that they've uh, they've left behind for us to uh, from now until uh, the second coming. But can you tell us about some, maybe some of the uh, the early church fathers and some of their writings yeah. and and how really this uh, you know the doctrine of purgatory was was developed and, and spread throughout the Catholic Church? Yeah. So the incredible thing is we find we can find purgatory very early on. Now we can find it in the one hundreds. We can find it in the late one hundreds, the early two hundreds. And on and on, you know, you find it very early on. What you do encounter, which is very interesting, is depending on the church father you're going to run into, they talk about purgatory in various different ways. And I was talking, I, I did a show a few days ago with um, uh, with Father Pacwa, and, and one thing that I, I noted to him, because Father Pacwa is a master of the languages, one thing I noted to him that blew me away was, I, you can find purgatory early on, but depending on the saint you encounter, they, are, they talk about it in, in different ways. And that brings me to my personal opinion, because the church has never defined it. But my opinion is, depending on the person, perhaps the purgatorial experience can vary from person to person. It's very possible. And if you look in the 100s, you're going to encounter a writing called The Passion of Perpetuum Felicitas. Now, I, I wish I knew. Let me see if I can pull that up right away. I don't know the exact uh, year that was written in. Let me see if I can pull that up. 
uh, okay, it was uh, very early 200s. Okay, so that would be later than Clement of Alexandria. Okay, I'm glad I pulled that up. So it's early 200s, but that's a really interesting writing because you've got a sister praying for her brother, her brother Dinocrates. And in, in the vision, she sees Dinocrates suffering. Now he has a, a, a scar from cancer that had been in his face. And he is in an area where he cannot get a hold of water, clearly suffering. Now, we don't find out what his sin was from that writing, but numerous fathers that provide incredible commentary do tell us. Now, Augustine, Tertullian, who was a church writer, not a church father, and other figures talked about this very work. It was an incredibly influential work in the early church. And Augustine noted that Dinocrates had been dragged into a kind of pagan-like thinking, went from being a baptized Catholic to dabbling in paganism and died in the friendship of God, but needing purification. And in this very early writing, it's an incredible one because after prayer and prayer and prayer, you eventually encounter towards the end of the story, towards the end of the vision, his sister, the sister of Dinocrates, realizes the prayers have helped aid her brother in being purified. The final vision has him cleaned up. He's been cleaned. He's been purified. And now he seems to have gone from a place of darkness to a place of light. And he's able to partake of a fountain of water that doesn't end. It's a really beautiful image. Uh, that is wow. that particular writing. Then Clement of Alexandria, likely very late 100s, maybe around 195, does provide us a very, very important image. And, and here's the one thing of Clement of Alexandria uh, that uh, people tend to forget. So Clement of Alexandria is a really, really important figure in the sense that he was an early church father that was very famous for having been one of the leaders of the catechetical school of Alexandria. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that school of thought, whether it had been a physical one, which some scholars think it was a physical one, or, or more of a kind of underground one that went from place to place traveling, either which way we, tradition tells us it was founded by St. Mark. And we have multiple leaders that ran that school throughout history. Clement, St. Clement of Alexandria, he's a saint in our church, is one of the ones that is considered very famous for having that, um, having been one of the leaders of that school. So we find a really, really important writing uh, that you find it in his stromata. Now in his stromata, he gives this really, really important language. Let me see if I can pull that up. Um, he talks about in the afterlife, he says that there are some people that died still needing to be cleansed of particular sins. And uh, I think I found it. Uh, this is really good. And he says this. Okay. He says that these punishments in the afterlife will cease in the course of the expiation and the purification of each one. Now, this is in regards to a person who has sins that do need to be cleansed in the afterlife. And the incredible thing about Clement of Alexandria, he utilizes a number of particular Greek words that you find directly from the Bible that are in reference to purging, purification. For instance, he utilizes a Greek word that comes from the Greek, uh, katharismos, which literally is the Greek word for purification. That's an important kind of theology that we have to emphasize because not a lot of people bring him up. Then another early figure in the 200s would be the great Saint Cyprian. Now, here's a really important figure because Saint Cyprian is probably the very first father that we're ever going to encounter, uh, and we encounter more later. But he's the earliest one that will get the language that we find from Matthew chapter 5, which talks about a post-mortem prison. And then he will combine that language with 1 Corinthians 3, and the fiery purification in the afterlife. And it really is magnificent language, David, because he, he begins talking about the afterlife, says there are some people that right away they're going to attain to glory. But then he says, it is one thing 
when cast into prison, not to go out until one is paid the final farthing. Hmm. Another thing at once to receive the wages of faith and courage. It is one thing tortured by long suffering for sins to be cleansed and long purged by fire. Another to have all purged all another to have purged all sins by suffering. This is the language that you find in the early church very often all throughout history. They utilize this particular language, post-mortem suffering. Some would talk about it as being a dark place, some as being a prison. But the one very clear concept we find throughout every era of church history, David, is that there's that purification that goes on for some in the afterlife. And that is what we mean by purgatorial suffering. And Christ in the gospel mentions uh, mentions yeah. hell a lot, right? I mean, maybe oh, not yeah. explicitly the word hell, yep. but talks about it a lot. But I think there, I think you're, that was a reference to the, I think that was the parallel. That was Matthew, is that Matthew chapter five, I believe. I yep. was just quickly checking that out. Got it. Now there's a difference because, you know, in the words of Christ, he talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth and you get that yep. feeling it's, there's the finality and that's how, you know, that's hell. And the, the reality of hell is, is painted picture, picture perfect and clear. But yeah. in that reference where it says, you know, you, he will be cast out, but, uh, you know, he, he will not be released until he pays the last farthing. Yeah. So that when you, when you read that, you're like, okay, he's, he's not saying that's final. There's some sort of, uh. It's sort of an intermediate, sort of a middle place there, right? Because he is saying you'll get out, but you got to pay the last farthing. Is that, is that kind of the main reference of yeah. Christ in the gospel where we can say that's probably, that's most likely a reference to purgatory? And are there some others that we could share with people too? Yeah, great point there, David. That really, you really hit the point on right on there because uh, there is temporal suffering in Matthew 5 because you will get out of that prison after you have paid that last farthing. Now, uh, you bring up a very good point there, because in hell there is that finality in the sense of you're not going to get out of there. You're going to suffer eternally. And to that very point, you have hell in 1 Corinthians 3, because right there where we read of the reward being given to the man, that is heaven. And then even the one that is undergoing post-mortem purification will be saved so you are assured of your salvation in purgatory. You will be saved, but you will undergo purgatorial suffering. But then verse 17, David, we read of the man who destroys the temple, and that man will be destroyed. Now, it doesn't mean a destruction in the, that would, uh, in the sense of annihilationism. Rather, it means a perpetual kind of suffering. The majority of the fathers that actually uh, commented on that noted how that destruction was an ongoing, eternal kind of destruction. So it wasn't a finality in the sense of annihilationism, but rather it is eternal suffering in hell. So you find that in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. That theology is present there as well. Another area that I like to go to, David, and, and, and it, it always opens up the discussion for a deeper theological talk with our evangelical friends, is 2 Maccabees 12, uh, 2 Maccabees ah, 12. Yes. <laughs> and it'll get the it'll get the ball rolling and talking about the canon, but I like to point to them and tell them, look, even if if we don't agree that this is a canonical book, we can look at it and approach it from a historical perspective. And what we have in Second Maccabees twelve is Judas Maccabeus and his army stumble upon men that have just died in battle. Now, this begins in chapter twelve. Uh, right around the 40 mark, but even before that, it's important to read everything before, because you'll realize that his army and his men went to fight a war, and that war was being fought for the one true God of Israel. Now, unfortunately, he finds his men, and they've got amulets that they've worn, which was against the law of Israel. It was against the law of God, and thus they died. They died in battle. Now, the, the argument from our Protestant friends, it's not a good one. The argument being that, well, they died in mortal sin, we'll hear. This perhaps is one of the, they think this is their most robust argument against Second Maccabees. They'll say, well, they died idolaters. Well, David, that doesn't fit because number one, uh, why would they be idolaters and go to war defending the one true God, fighting for the one true God? It wouldn't make any sense. What makes more sense is what St. Robert Bellarmine has to say. And he noted 
that likely what they were wearing was probably what they had looted, loot from a previous war, or even good luck charms that they were wearing. Doesn't matter whether it was loot or good luck charms, either way, they were in sin for not fully trusting in the one true God, not fully trusting. Thus, what happens in 2 Maccabees 12 is we encounter an incredible kind of theology being laid out. That is, you when they encounter the men that have died and have fallen, and I want to pull up the text so I can make sure that I'm reading it uh, correctly. But when Judas Maccabeus um, encounters the men that have died, what then happens should blow anybody's mind, even if they think that this book is not a canonical text, because they stop and they begin to pray. Now, the prayer and the supplication for the men have fallen shows us that this was common practice in ancient Judaism. Because when Judas Maccabeus stops to pray for them, right away his men do so as well. Nowhere does it seem like this is a novelty. Nowhere does it seem like it had not been done before. It rather seems very commonplace. And they pray for the men. And people may, may uh, stop and say, well, okay, so what other evidence do you have that they didn't die in mortal sin? Well, the text tells you itself they fell asleep in godliness. So they didn't die in mortal sin. And then we have that other area, David, where people will say, okay, well, okay, it's prayer for the dead, but and where is purgatory here? And fair enough, David, because we need to be able to connect the two. Even though I firmly believe every early church father that talked about prayer for the dead, without a doubt, believed in purgatory. But we want to connect the two. And if you continue reading in 2 Maccabees, right at the end, depending on how your Bible numbers the verses, it could be 45 for one, could be 46 for another. But at the very end, it tells you that it was a holy and pious thought. And then it says, why did they pray them? So that they could be loosed, depending on the Greek translation, either delivered or loosed are used there. Now, if these men were not suffering in some kind of way, they wouldn't have needed deliverance, or as that Greek word is, loosing. Now, clearly, it is heavily and strongly implied in two Maccabees, 2 Maccabees 12 that there is some kind of deliverance they need, and we firmly believe it's because they were undergoing post-mortem purgatorial purification, a suffering of some sort. Now, that's so interesting because, you know, obviously we know that Jesus opened the doors, the gates of heaven yes. for those who, uh, yeah. who who walked in friendship with him. So if we go back to the Old Testament, we know there's so many just people there, such a yep. great stories there. The, the bosom of Abraham is, is one thing that's, that's called. So in the Jewish tradition, William, was was there sort of an understanding that if, if you live, you know, a just life in, in relationship with God, you would go to the bosom of Abraham, yeah. but if you were, you did have those these imperfections or these uh, these attachments or whatever these are that there that there there was actually a purgatory then as well before yeah. you would take that next step, you know, knowing that of course heaven is coming, the the uh, the promised one Jesus Christ was going to come eventually, the Messiah, but was that sort of the steps there that there was purgatory and then they could be delivered into the bosom of Abraham? Does that yeah, make sense? It, it it completely does, and you you find it very very strongly implied there in Second Maccabees. In fact, here's a very interesting thing: if you read the Greek of of the Maccabean text, it's very interesting that all of it is indicative of the fact that those that are dead are <clears throat> being written about. The language utilized for them is indicative that they are still part of the house of Israel in some sense. Now, that fits perfectly with purgatorial teaching within the ancient Christian faith. And clearly within ancient Judaism, that was what was being taught as well. Now, we can point to the Jewish encyclopedia, David, which you look, look it up, it'll tell you right there that purgatory is clearly believed within ancient Judaism. Now, the other thing that we will point out is when we look at that particular text and then we look at the early church fathers, you find not only Latin fathers, you find Greek fathers, you find Syriac fathers, you find some of the fathers that would have known the Hebrew language the best. And you find this teaching of purgatory taught by all of these fathers. Now, why is that important? 
And why do I bring that point up? Because that is a very clear mark of apostolicity. Now, if you find fathers, every kind of father, and that's the beauty of the Catholic faith, you can look at fathers of every kind of language, and they are they provide incredible attestation to the doctrines that we believe in. And that, to me, is a, a clear mark of, of, of the apostolic faith, the apostolic burning fire that is present in our church. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, I was reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there is a, a nice, you know, kind of three paragraphs on purgatory yeah. that are that are very good. The one that's uh, under uh, reference ten thirty two. I thought I'd just really read it really quick because yeah. there's something I wanted to ask you about here. So this is the one uh, ten thirty two. It starts as uh, the teaching of purgatory is based on the practice of prayer for the dead, uh, already mentioned in sacred scripture, and we've already mm-hmm. referenced uh, the Maccabees and, and a few others as well. One of the footnotes, though, William, and it's, uh, it seems to be um, accredited to St. John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. um, and it says, uh, let us help and commemorate them, the souls in purgatory. Yeah. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Mm-hmm. Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. So yeah. the reference to Job, I'd never heard that before. Is yeah. there some some additional context you could provide? That, again, that's uh, yeah. you know in the Old Testament as well. That reference. Now, I, I hope that I'm correct here. Um, I believe that would be his homily on the on Philippians uh, from John Chrysostomos. Now, the incredible thing about John Chrysostom is is there are a number of areas. It is humbly. Yeah. Philippians, it is? Okay. Yeah, that's great. the one. That's It says right there in the footnote. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank the good, <laughs> good, thank the good, good Lord. Good William. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> that was the fine print. <laughs> awesome. Great. I'm, I'm glad I, I was able to get that right. So there are a number of areas, and I've studied every single area where John Chrysostom talks about purgatory, and I find that one to be probably one of the most incredibly uh, magnificent ones. He notes that there is purification that is spoken of, um, particularly in the book of Job, and what he does is he will connect, and he doesn't only do it there, he'll talk about all kinds of purification in the Old Testament, and he will note that every kind of purification is imperfect, but rather the kind of purification that comes from the holy sacrifice of the Mass, now that is a perfect one. And if people in the Old Testament were purified by imperfect kinds of sacrifices because our Lord had not become incarnate yet. We didn't have the holy sacrifice of the mass yet. And if those were were, were acceptable back then, how much more incredible and acceptable is the holy sacrifice of the mass? It's pretty much exactly what, he's, what he is breaking down. You find it all throughout Chrysostom. He will use that as an example. And then there, there's two particular areas as well where Chrysostom provides us very interesting observations on one and on one Corinthians three. Now, when he talks about First Corinthians three, he provides a very odd, um, very odd exegesis of it. Probably the oddest one I have ever encountered. Where I've talked to a number of scholars on John Chrysostom, and they've given me the best explanation. So uh, he talks about a certain man going to the fire. But he talks about the man going through the fire with armor on. And as he crosses the fire, he comes through on the other side with the armor shinier than before. Now, John Chrysostom's theology is an amazing one because he believed everyone would go through the fire. But people that were holier than others and didn't need that purification for sin would not be burned by that fire. And now that fire in Chrysostom was the fiery love of Christ, which a lot of fathers have that language. And it really does make a whole lot of sense because he then provides the language of the the, the individual wearing a golden suit of armor, coming through with it even brighter and shinier. So his theology on purification in the afterlife was very, very well developed. He was a Greek father. He was an incredible Greek orator you probably would have heard of purgatory being preached at one of his masses. And I've got to tell you, David, if you have these kinds of teachings being taught and written about in the early church, through every kind of generation and century we go to, you find it prevalent all the time. This shows you that this was a teaching that dates right back to the beginning. And today we would like to hearken and call our 
evangelical friends to recognize not only them, David, but our Eastern brothers and sisters as well. Unfortunately, a lot of them have moved away from this particular kind of teaching. And that really is unfortunate. Oh, that's for sure. Well, you know what? I wanted to also ask you about this. I mean, who doesn't love a good wedding? And of course, we've talked a little yeah. bit about hell and how Jesus paints <laughs> a picture for what hell will look like and weeping yeah. and gnashing of teeth. But anytime he references the, a wedding, and that's why I love going to weddings, not because I, I like to eat, <laughs> as I'm sure you do too, William. You get oh, some yeah. pretty decent food there. But it's such a great uh, uh, symbol of, of Christ's promise to us. And of course, the, yeah. the eternal uh, feast in heaven that uh, we can all look forward to and we should meditate on. I wanted to ask you about the, the parable, again, going back to, to the, yeah. the Gospels again, but I, I just want to kind of pick your brain on this one. But sure. The parable of the, the marriage, uh, the wedding feast. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, so we have uh, Jesus saying that, uh, you know, he's inviting people to the banquet, getting ready to go. Uh, but then he found that, uh, you know, nobody's showing up because uh, they went, the king was angry, sent his troops, destroyed the murderers that burned the city. Yep. Then he said to the servants, uh, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And I think this is where it gets kind of interesting. This is what I want to ask you about. It says, go therefore to the streets and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Yep. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, and of course, for many are called, but few are chosen. And I was thinking about that too. And I, and of course that kind of gives that sort of definitive, not looking too good for this, this guy that didn't show up with a wedding garment, but it was just interesting. I said, both bad and good came to the wedding feast, but this particular, he actually even referred to this person as a friend, but he didn't have the wedding garment. Is there some little parallels there that we can at least uh, uh, talk about just with the impurities or, or not having that clean garment and not yeah. being ready for heaven? Because he got into the wedding feast, yep. but he wasn't, he couldn't stay. Yeah, now that, that is a theology that you find very well developed in particular by the Syriac fathers. So it really does primarily come from the fact that within Catholicism, we believe that you must be fully, fully holy before entering into heaven. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, within Protestantism, and I I don't want to make a caricature of it, within Protestantism, the massive majority of Protestants don't believe that. They believe that we can enter heaven by merely being cloaked. They'll call it kind of like a cloak with the, the imputed righteousness of Christ is what they call it, not inherent. So they don't do, they do not believe that we need the infused righteousness Now, what do we mean by infused righteousness when we talk about it as a Catholic? We mean exactly what Revelation 21 says, that nothing impure can enter heaven. But we take it literally. We need a transformation. We need to be changed in order to be able to enter into that great, great paradise. We need to be changed. And that really does strike to the heart of the issue, because everywhere you look at, where you talk of, where you read of, people that are judged by their works. And even in 1 Corinthians 3, where you're judged by what you did. Now, did you build with precious stones or did you build with bad material? It's indicative of how the person lived their life. And of course, there's a purification that goes on there. All of this points to the fact that we must be cleansed and it's an inner kind of cleansing in order to enter into heaven. And I think that's one of the greatest differences between us and our evangelical friends, because at the end of the day, believe it or not, as funny as it may sound, when we say, well, uh, they believe in sola fide and we don't believe in it. No, we can utilize sola fide in a positive aspect. A number of fathers did. A number of them said that they believed in salvation by faith alone, but they meant an active, living, working kind of faith. Not a sola fide that Martin Luther put forth, a very different kind. But ultimately, once you roll all that back, there's a lot of language we can agree upon with our evangelical friends. But what we cannot agree upon is the fact that we don't need a complete cleansing to enter into heaven. We do, but that complete cleansing means that we actually do change. We are actually regenerated. And that's a very, very important teaching 
uh, that goes hand in hand with baptismal regeneration. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 3? Baptism now saves you. And it's talking about that inner transformation. Sometimes we, we forget that how much one sin really separates us oh, yeah. from God, right? And and yeah. how uh, how uh, you know just in the eyes of God uh, how uh, horrible and our, our souls would look with after that that one sin. So really, yeah. purgatory is just a, a great uh, um, a gift of mercy, really, to us, yeah. because one sin, even a small one that maybe wouldn't even be considered a mortal sin, would actually separate us forever from God or an attachment, right? So yeah. so it it is a place of of mercy, right? What yeah. what would you say to people that um, uh, you know to means of avoiding purgatory? Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many great ones. And I think of the sacramentals, the sacramentals with a small S, William, right? And yeah. and how us uh, Catholics, we just don't utilize them often enough. And, yeah. you know, I was just reading even some uh, some stuff recently about even the, the power of something like holy water, yeah. that uh, even a devout uh, uh, sign of the cross using holy water can mm-hmm. can uh, can wipe out your venial sins, yep. which is just amazing. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful, these gifts that we have in our church? Yeah. Um, So what are, yeah, what are some ways that we can, we can avoid purgatory? Yeah. Now you you brought it up and I'm glad I was able to pull it up for for people that, that ever wonder the, the incredible sacramental importance of holy water. You can find it not only foreshadowed in the old Testament, but clearly utilized. You find priests that utilized holy water all over in, in ancient Judaism. And for the audience wondering what a great point you bring up there, David, and I'd recommend the audience go and look, at Numbers chapter 5, verse 17, where we read, The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and to take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So you find wow. within ancient Judaism, this model was already being practiced at the incredible importance of holy water. And of course, once we enter into the fullness of the faith, into Catholicism, once all once those promises of the Old Testament become being fulfilled, we realize just how important holy water is, and it was already foreshadowed, <clears throat> already spoken of in the Old Testament. Holy water is one very important thing. Another really important thing that I think people may tend to overlook is doing good, almsgiving, uh, praying for the sick, praying for the dead, doing things like uh, helping our brothers and sisters. So, you know, I've heard some people say, well, uh, you know what, William, I, I don't have... Um, the ability to physically go out, donate money, or, or to physically go out and help others. Well, help others by praying for them. I always tell people, David, the one thing I always say is the greatest kind of support that I, ever, I can ever get is people pray for me, pray for me and pray mm-hmm. for my family. And all of these kinds of ways help us grow in virtue, help us grow. Now, in Catholicism, we talk about our salvation. We talk about growing in justice. Now, what do we mean by that? We grow in righteousness. We grow in holiness. And the reason we can do that is all because we're under the covenant of Christ. Now, if if you notice in Romans 3, here's the amazing thing about the Bible, David. In Romans 3, we read about the law. Now, it says that we're not saved by works. Talking about works of the law. We're saved by faith, not by works of the law. Now, why is that? You keep reading Romans 3. It tells us that we're under the law of faith. We're under the law of Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that now that Christ has come, that old law, the imperfect law, we are no longer under it. But the law that we are now under is a law that means that we must have faith, an active and living and working faith, as Galatians 5, 6 says. And that having that kind of faith means that we do good. So prayer and doing these kinds of things will help you grow in sanctification, grow in holiness. And the one thing that I always like to say, David, is as long as people have that mindset, get to Mass, get to church, pray for others, I, I don't think they have a whole lot to worry about. I think uh, I think the, the demons and the evil spirits would have more to worry about once you start living a holy life. That's for sure. And even, uh, you know, for people that... Uh that uh, there's so many saints that have said that even just you attending one mass yourself is, is better than a hundred that are offered oh, yeah. for you after your life. Right. Oh, so, yeah. but you know, back to our, the original thing we talked about when we, we kicked off this episode was it, it is really sad to see mm. that sometimes you see the obituaries of people in our, even in our parish and, 
and uh, you know some some men especially that uh, that have been influential to me that have treated me very well over the years and but their family their children have, have totally lost the faith William yeah. and they barely even get a Catholic burial yeah. and it's scary that uh, and whether they're you know maybe they didn't let their their wishes be well known uh, clearly their their children have lost the faith but uh, it's so important for us to if you can to offer a mass for them, yep. usually it's just a, a suggested donation at your parish. Yep. If you can do that, but uh, you know, and then other works of, of supplication, maybe you can't afford it for some reason. But hey, offer up, uh, maybe uh, give up a coffee. You know, yep. give up some chocolates, give up some, some small forms of mortification. Yes. That the church, uh, you know, some of these disciplines have kind of been forgotten. But maybe yeah, talk a little bit about that. You know, we talk about. Uh, um, you know, reparation for uh, on behalf of others too, and, and some of the things that have happened. And you know, we see that that saints have said throughout history, and even yeah. some of the the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that people in purgatory are forgotten, aren't they, William? Like nobody even yeah. thinks about them anymore. They've been there for so long, and there's no one to help them out. So, yeah, what what are some other maybe just some practical things that we can do to to help the souls in purgatory? Th- those are great points you bring up there, David. Really, really good points. And, the kind of penance that was done in the early church at times um, uh, today, people would think it would it would be incredibly extreme. But back then, uh, the amount of prayer that was recommended that people do after even just venial sins, David, was massive, sometimes would be considered uh, um, too much for people today. And, and for, that's a really unfortunate thing because it really tells us where the mindset of people is today. But the one thing that I always point out, David, and I think it's really important is when you're at mass or even when you're, when you're at home as well, but most importantly, when you're at mass, remember all of those lost souls. You don't need to know, know every name. You don't need to know every single name, but remember the lost souls undergoing purgatorial suffering because they need to be remembered. Uh, you, I think of the incredible saint of the church by the name, his name was Odolo. Now Odolo had an incredible, um, bearing on uh, on the the current date of all souls all saints and all souls day now now why is that um now we the church has always celebrated something similar to halloween now what do we mean by halloween we mean all all those evening now what do we mean we mean celebrating all saints day we don't mean the kind of um uh, americanized kind of uh hollywood kind of thing we mean the Christian, the Catholic kind of thing. Now, Odolo wrote an incredible work talking about how the particular monastery that he occupied was one that was, he felt a heaviness there. And he then realized that there was a bit of a darkness over the particular monastery. And he realized that there were so many people throughout the ages before he took over that monastery that had been forgotten about that weren't being prayed for anymore. And he his his particular theology, theological works helped fix a particular date in which we celebrate Halloween today. Now, that is important because throughout history, we've always celebrated saints and martyrs, but the dates vary, whether it be May, whether it be whatever, whatever month. But Odolo played a very important role in that because Odolo noted the, the massive amount of souls that had been forgotten. And he began to pray for them and pray for them. A lot of them, he didn't even know their names, but he prayed and he offered up penance. Here's one other thing. People don't know that if you are undergoing a kind of suffering, now Odolo, under, uh, I, I forgot what his physical ailment was, but he had a particular physical ailment and he would offer up his sufferings for the souls in purgatory. People don't realize that you can do that as well. Little things here and there. And, yes. and you brought up coffee. I got to tell you, for some people, not having their coffee is definitely a penance. Consider those kinds of things. Absolutely. That's why I brought, that was the first thing that came to my mind. That's why yeah. I said coffee, because I love coffee. I do too. <laughs> but those little things, they mean something, right? They sure do. Uh, that's so good. Um, maybe one last one I wanted to ask sure. you about, and uh, and that's uh, that's the legacy of faith that we can mm-hmm. we can leave for, for our kids. And, and yeah. uh, that's the greatest thing that we can do, not only for our children, but also you, know, you look back to it to the the people that have brought the faith to us are maybe even even uh, people that we haven't met. Yeah. You know, that could be our our grandparents, our great grandparents that uh, that uh, maybe even escaped. Uh, you know, some. You know, my my background is uh, 
is Europe. So they escaped mm-hmm. to Marxism and communism right. to come and, and to practice uh, freely in, in Canada and, and even places in the United States as well. Yeah. We owe them a debt of, of gratitude that's uh, beyond words to, to bring that faith to us and live through some yeah. real tough times here. And uh, the best thing that we can do really is just to pray for the dead. I did want you to, to comment, especially um, for our, our, our deceased parents and grandparents for mm-hmm. sure, so that they aren't forgotten about. Yep. Now, I know that there's so many TV shows, William. Like, I mean, we're, yep. we're, as we record this, it's kind of getting around Halloween. <laughs> they got these these weird movies out, these scary yep. movies. And, you know, that a lot of them are, you know, kind of this, this macabre uh, sort of, you know, They're, just it just kind of gives you the creeps, yeah. right? And I don't know if... Well, it's definitely not something probably that's Catholic should really be getting yeah. involved in. However, there is a spiritual element out there that we can't deny. And yeah. you mentioned that, you know, just an old monastery, these these places that can have these a presence. And I think that Catholics, I mean, I think it's part of our, maybe the charism they get, the gifts that we get, that sometimes we can sense things. Yeah. But it's uh, it's really important that we don't, you know, start going down these rabbit holes of, you know, these TV guys that say, hey, we can speak uh know to the you know the other side right we can talk to the the sea souls of your parents or your grandparents or your friend um if if we're hey we got to avoid that at all costs but you know if there is something that we kind of feel maybe it's in our home maybe it's in some other place it's so important that we you know maybe even just bring it to the attention of a of your parish priest as well maybe there's some prayers that need to be said but even for ourselves we need to be praying for those souls sometimes that is a message that um you know a gentle message that we need to be Praying for the souls. Is that is that fair enough, William? That's a great, great point you bring up there. Now, David, um, a few days ago, I had not aired it yet on my channel, but a few days ago, I did a show uh, with with Father Lampert. Now, Father Lampert is one hmm. of the top uh, one of the top Catholic exorcists in the world. Right. Yes. And, and during the show, yeah, he's great. During the show, I brought up that very point. I said, Father, we're we're in a we're in the Halloween Halloween season. For the majority of people tuning in, I told him. Uh, they're going to, when I talk about Halloween, they're going to think of Michael Myers, murderers, you know, movies like that. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I told him. And, and the very point that you brought up, he brought up and he said, th- th- those movies are not recommended. Uh, in yeah. fact, I'd urge Catholics to stay away from them. They they open up doors to things that are bad. And then he brought up mm-hmm. another point. And he, he told me, he said, look, we're, we're living in a time where uh, the majority of children can tell me who the characters of a Harry Potter or uh, or of a bad book, who they are, but they can't tell me a single thing about the Bible. He mm. says, and that really does tell you that we're living in, in, in tumultuous times. And, um, and, and it really is recommended to stay away from those things. Now, one area that I've done a lot of work in as well, David, uh, not myself, but in the sense of interviews and research is on the area of ghosts. Now, very, very relevant to the topic of the particular month we're in, uh, people need to flee from trying to conjure up ghosts. Mm. Uh, Rather, instead, dig your heels into praying for the dead, because you're not going to conjure up a relative of yours uh, that is in heaven. You're going to conjure up an evil force that is perhaps going to pretend to be your relative. And Mm. doing things like this are condemned. Now, calling upon the dead is condemned, particularly by the book of Deuteronomy. As Catholics, we're not doing that. We are praying for the dead or asking for those incredibly amazing saints in heaven to pray for us per the book of Revelation, as it tells us we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And we're Mm -hmm. told in Revelation 5 that there are saints in heaven that do receive our prayers and do intercede. The prayers are shown arriving in heaven in golden bowls full of incense, and then the the presbyters in heaven they're presented as priests. The Greek is literally they're 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 in a role of priests, and they bow before the Lamb and present our prayers to the Lamb. So there's a good way of doing prayer. There's a good way of remembering the dead, and then there's a way that we really want to avoid, and that's the way that is presented all too often in Hollywood. Mm, absolutely, what a beautiful image of heaven, eh? And just bringing your... gorgeous. Um petitions and, and yeah. prayers and, and all the, the good works that you do on oh, earth. And, and we need to know, you know, we've always, we've heard of the saints with the capital S, but yeah. remember that whoever we help in purgatory to get to heaven, they're going to intercede for us as well. Oh yeah. You think of the amazing, the incredible suffering that they go through. Of course they would do that for us. You know, they love yeah. us very much more than we could probably ever imagine on earth. Yep. Can you recommend some, some good books or some videos that, uh, that our listeners can, can uh, refer to when it comes to the doctrine of purgatory? 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's a very, very good book. And let me let me make sure that I get the title right. And it's a book that you don't hear about a whole lot. Um, but I really recommend it now. It is called Purgatory and the Means to Avoid It. Now, people very often ask me, uh, David, what my favorite book in Purgatory is. And I'm going to have to point to this one. It's The author is Martin Gigi. Now, I'm looking on Amazon. and it's, it's a bit pricey for the hardcover. But there are a number of used copies that are around $9. Very, very affordable. I would recommend they get it. It's a very good book. Martin Gigi was one of the top and greatest scholars of the Catholic Church. Wrote great books. A lot of them we don't have translated on Mariology. But a great, great author. And this book in Purgatory is a great book. If anybody has it in their mind, how on earth can I avoid purgatory? How can I do better for the souls in purgatory? How can I help them? And how, what kinds of prayers should I utilize for them? This is a book that is an incredible book. I recommend to everybody that ever asked me. And I've never heard anybody tell me that they regret getting it. I've only heard positive things. Excellent. And there's another one. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's, it's Purgatory Explained by the Lives yeah. and Legends of the Saints. It's an older book. I yeah. believe it's by Tan. Very good book. Uh, and it was by a priest as well. And that recounts a lot of stories that, that the saints have, have received and uh, yeah. really paints a picture of, of the reality of, of the place. Purgatory is it's not, uh, no doubt. definitely not uh, better roses out there. So that's why we've got to really uh, keep yeah. praying for, for the souls in purgatory for sure. Absolutely. But there's also some great suggestions on how to avoid it. So no, thank you very much for that, yeah. William. William, this time has flown by so much. I appreciate you joining us. Wow, that was uh that was some action-packed, high-octane Catholicism that uh, I know our listeners are really going to appreciate. So how can our, our listeners reach out to you and, and find your works? They can find me over at my webpage, which would be patristicpillars.com, or a really easy way, go to earlychurchfathers.com. It will take you directly there. I run that as well, same page. They're connected to, to one another. If they want to look up uh, a bunch of videos and debates I've done, they can find me on YouTube. Uh Put my name there a lot of stuff will come out and um they'll find a lot of videos a lot of debates and more than anything else david i hope that they are edified by the kind of work that i've done uh god willing it will strengthen their faith and the other thing that i would really ask from your audience from your audience more than anything else is that they pray for me pray my pray for my family and for you and your incredible ministry uh, you're doing great work here david and, and i really really appreciated your your very thoughtful questions you're incredibly uh, in-depth observations, and, and I, I really hope your ministry continues to grow. Hope you enjoyed that interview with William Albrecht as much as I did, and you learned something about purgatory. I know for non-Catholics, this is something that can be a bit of a roadblock to your understanding of the Catholic faith. And in charity, I think William did a great job of presenting a lot of the reasons why us Catholics believe in purgatory, uh, the doctrine, how it developed from the early church fathers, and pointing throughout Scripture and through the lives of the saints and the, the teachings of the saints of why purgatory is a doctrine and is something that we believe in in the Catholic Church. And the church, there's three different uh, parts of our church. The church triumphant in heaven, all the saints, always in the presence of Jesus Christ, always uh, the beatific vision that they behold at all times. Then the church is militant is us here on earth because our salvation is very much uh, in doubt. Of course, when we live a sacramental life in right relationship with Jesus Christ, it is not in doubt. We are on our way to heaven when we do that. But we're still fighting for our souls here. And we are and we have uh, the ability and the grace to not only help ourselves get to heaven, but we also have the ability to offer up our works, joy, sufferings, inconveniences. And, uh, and that's we can offer them up for the souls in purgatory, which is the, which is the church suffering and we need to remember that here in the month of november and then throughout the year make it an everyday part of your life a very pious tradition in the church is every time you pass a cemetery is to pray for the souls in purgatory how many of us are on a commute to work that we pass at least one cemetery so let's not make a cemetery a place of, of fear or uh, something that we uh, feel uncomfortable talking about or thinking about the four last things if you want to be uh, a mighty Catholic, a mighty warrior for Jesus Christ, we have to think about the four last things because death is a part of eternal life. That's our entry into eternal life, and that's where we're called to be, called to be with Jesus Christ forever. So let's take that seriously, and let's take the, the plight of the souls of our brothers and sisters in purgatory seriously. 
one more time. And when they get to heaven through our prayers and through our um, sacrifices, they're going to help us. They're going to be interceding in front of Jesus at his throne to help us get to heaven as well. So let's not forget that. They love us very much. So let's return that love to them, our brothers and sisters in purgatory, by remembering them all the time, not just their month of November, but every month and every day of the year. Well, thanks for listening to the Catholic Connect podcast, everyone. And again, a big thanks to William Albrecht. Man, you're going to love his stuff at patristicpillars.com. So many great resources, uh, so much great information and great debates there. You're going to learn a lot to not only know your faith, defend your faith, but also to share your faith with other people. Find our podcast on Facebook and on Twitter and drop me a line anytime. Love hearing from you. Keep that up. And as Catholics, we know what we've got to do. We've got to live a sacramental life so we can be a beacon of light to this hurting world. This world needs Catholics. It needs lovers of Jesus Christ, authentic lovers of Jesus Christ. So let's receive communion worthily. And how we do that is by going to confession often, at least three times every year, every Lent, every Advent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon. Thank you.